so good to see you. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Everyone watching online, we're glad that you're with us. Can we give it up for everyone watching online today? Come on. I just want to remind you uh, that, uh, especially people online, if you're kind of waiting for uh, another gathering or a bigger space, I want to let you know where we're at as a church. We're considering starting, uh, an, adding an additional gathering to make more room, uh, and, uh, and we're still looking at the high school auditorium. So I just want to keep that in, in, on the forefront of your mind. Be praying uh, that, uh, that the high school auditorium would open up so that we could go back and uh, be uh, all together again and uh, more people come back with, with more room. So uh, hopefully you look forward to that. Look at someone next to you say, you look good today. All right. If you're, if you're married, husbands, you're welcome. All right. I just help you out a little bit today. Um, well, this is my second week of uh, confessions of a church pastor, and uh, I want to walk you through something that the Lord did uh, in my life this summer, and uh, I hope and I pray that it'll help you in uh, maybe some things that you're dealing with uh, today and in, in your life. Um, I've been married for almost 20 years. This next, yeah, I know. Uh, I always get cheers when I say how long I've been married. I, it's great. Like, uh, if, if, I think it's over 15 years people start cheering for you. Um, so uh, this next summer we'll celebrate 20 years. In uh, 20 years, um, I remember when Brienne and I got married, and I remember we were in college. Uh, I was a senior going into my senior year. She was going into her junior year. So we were young, and we were in love, and we did what everyone told us not to do. Don't get married in college. You're going to distract your career. And, you're, and we just thought, you know what, we love each other. We're just going to get married. And so we got this little apartment in Covina, California. It's the only place that we could afford. And we realized within the first month why we could afford that place. I mean, we heard gunshots going off like across the street. And uh, I remember uh, in June of 2002, we find this little apartment. It was about uh, five miles from our school in San Dimas, California. Uh, and, uh, and we moved move in. And when you get married, you're not only blending your, your, your personalities, you're not only bringing your emotional baggage into the relationship, you're also bringing your physical baggage into the relationship. What, what am I talking about? Well, Brienne and I got to mix our possessions together. Uh, and, uh, and so we didn't have a lot. We didn't have a kitchen table. We, di we didn't have uh, a couch. Uh, we, we, we had uh, kitchen utensils and everything that people gave us for our wedding. And so we're, we're bringing things together. I don't have a lot, but I have a box of stuff that my wife might call junk, uh, but, 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 it, but it needs a place to go. And so we're setting up our apartment, very, very first week that we're there, like the first day. And if you know my wife, my, my wife is a great organizer and she's a great designer and she's a great decorator. She's phenomenal. And, and so we're decorating and I, and I look in the kitchen, I walk in the kitchen and I say, uh, honey, uh, uh, which one, I didn't call her honey back then, it was babe. All right, <laughs> ba babe, um, which drawer is gonna be the junk drawer? And, and she looked at me like I was from another planet. <laughs> And she says, Aaron, we are not going to have a junk drawer. And it was the first argument, a real argument of our fresh marriage, right? It was over the junk drawer. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? Everyone has a junk drawer. 
A junk drawer is the place that you put stuff where you don't know where it belongs. She goes, he goes, she goes, Aaron, she goes, we're going to have a place for everything. I said, no, we're not. We're going to have a junk drawer. <laughs> she won. All right. She won. We don't have a junk drawer. Almost 20 years later, we don't have a junk drawer, all right? And, and, and the closest thing that resembles it is all organized. It's got pens and pencils and paper clips. Some, how many of you have a junk drawer in your house? How many, how many of you have like a junk closet, right? A few of you, like, that's just like a, you invite people over and you just don't look in that closet. Well, here's what I think. I think, I think not only do some of us have a junk drawer uh, in our houses, I think we have a junk drawer in our life. I think it's the place that we put stuff in our life that we don't really want to deal with, uh, that, that we don't want anyone else to talk about. We don't want anyone to pull that junk drawer open and see uh, everything that doesn't belong anywhere else. And I realized that I myself had a junk drawer that got pulled out during sabbatical. And for me, the junk drawer was the unprocessed pain uh, that I experienced in life. Last week I talked about this concept of leadership trauma. Leadership trauma. That if you lead anything, uh, that, that you will experience pain in that leadership because leadership is pain, all right? And, and in order to grow from that pain, you must rest your, your, your mind and your heart, your soul and your body in order to come back stronger from that pain. But just like an athlete who maybe never rests their, their, their bodies or their muscles, you have diminishing returns. And so I realized that I had leadership trauma. I had unprocessed pain in my life. It was in the junk drawer that had to come out. And I think that I allowed pain uh, to become a little part of my identity. And, uh, and I became a friend of this pain. And I would commiserate with my friends, my pastor friends, about the pain that I experienced. And we'd laugh and we'd make jokes. And it was kind of the story of who could tell the worst thing that had ever happened to them in life. And uh, one of my friends, he got spit on by someone in his office because he changed the location of the church. I mean, there's just stuff that has happened that you'd think, why would stuff like that ever happen? And so we just, we laugh and we joke and we mess around and I, and, and we tell stories, but, but we'd never find, I never, I'll speak for myself, I never found healing. And it wasn't until a few weeks before sabbatical that uh, that, that something happened in my life. And, and I hit, and I've talked about this before, but I came up with language for this. I hit w what I'm going to call our pain vertex, our pain vertex. Now, a vertex, uh, if, you, if you like math, you know what a vertex is. It is the most extreme point on a curve on a graph, right? And most times the vertex is the very bottom point. And so if you imagine a graph and you imagine a curve, the vertex is the very bottom. And the pain vertex of our life, I think everyone has one, is the point at which you decide that you need help, that you can't go on the way that you're going, that you don't want to live in the dysfunction anymore, and you take a time out in your life and you realize that, that you need to grow and you need to change and you need some help in your life. And here's the reality, this is what I've discovered, that people often don't change uh, until the pain of continuing on the trajectory that they're on is greater than the pain that it takes to actually change. And let me tell you this, all right? Did you, did you get that? Because your reaction didn't match the profundity of that statement. Let me just say that one more time. That, that, that oftentimes people don't realize 
that they need change or they want change, they don't say they need help until the pain of continuing on the trajectory of where they're at on their current path is greater than the pain that it takes to say, I need help and I need to change. Because I am telling you, it takes a lot of work and effort to, 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 to admit, and it is painful in and of itself to hit that pain vertex and realize that we need change. Let, let, let me just give you a classic example of this. Uh, someone who's uh, an addict, an alcoholic, and, and maybe in their life they're, they're functional, meaning that, that, that they can hold their family together and they can hold a job uh, and, and they, can, uh, they can live their life, but they can they, they, can, they, they live in the, the dysfunction of an alcoholic, but, but they're able to manage together. And, and oftentimes, it's not till relationships begin to, uh, to break and, and, and your family begins to fall apart and maybe your job's in jeopardy that people will often say, okay, I need help now. Like the, the, the pain of this is greater than, than the pain it takes just to, to go to AA and find help and find wholeness and find healing. This also happens in marriages. Uh, I, 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 how many times have I sat in my office with, with, with somebody with a broken marriage? And by the way, the pastor, instead of being the first stop on the road to a broken marriage, is often the last stop on the, broke, the road to a broken marriage. And people want me to do a miracle, and I just pray for the Lord to do a miracle. But this is what happens. People hit their pain vertex. It, meaning one of the spouse uh, says, I can't take it anymore. Something drastic needs to happen in your life or I'm out, I'm gone, or you're out, or you're gone. And, and she or he hit her pain vertex and that caused him to say, okay, this is too painful, I wanna change. Are you with me? Everyone has a pain vertex and, and here's the reality, everyone's is at a different level. Some of you experience a little amount of pain, you're like, oh, I wanna change right now. Some of you, it takes hitting the bottom of the barrel in order for you to say, I need help. Well, I was in my own pain, and I hit that vertex. And, and, and here's what happened is my turning point. Uh, and, and my turning point was, was this. I was meeting with my spiritual advisor, uh, and uh, we were talking about what I was going to do on sabbatical. Uh, and, uh, and he goes, well, well, and I said, I'm going to Wyoming for a week and I'm going to spend time in the mountains and I'm, I'm just going to debrief my life and leadership. And uh, I was going to try to get that out of the way in order so, for me to enjoy the rest of my, my time to, just to be with family and to be with the Lord. And he goes, well, what are you going to debrief? And I began to tell him story after story. And he, and he looked at me. He said, Aaron, he says, you sounds like you have unforgiveness. It, and I sat there stunned. It, and I was in silence for a moment. It, and then I gave him the look that I give people when I think they're insane. If you know me well, you know that look. My wife knows that look. My coworkers know that look. It, it goes something like this. And I, and I stared at him for a few seconds and then all of a sudden, it was like a damn burst in my life. It, it, it was a watershed moment, and I realized that the pain that I had been carrying is still fresh, even though it happened years ago, because I was holding on to something that I shouldn't be holding on to. And it was like a revelation in my life. It, you see, this is what I've discovered about people. Most people don't want changed lives. They want changed situations. 
see, the difference is this. The difference is a change situation is you say, you know what, my, my, my work is dysfunctional, so I need to change who I work for. My, my, my friends are dysfunctional, so I need to change who I'm friends with. My spouse is dysfunctional, so I need to change who my spouse is. Are, are you with me? And people think if we change the situation, then our life will get better. How many of you know that that isn't a great road to follow? Because if you change situations, the dysfunction follows you if you never deal with it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And so my turning point was someone who had enough guts to tell me that I was holding on and withholding forgiveness. By the way, I've preached on forgiveness. <laughs> I, I, I've prayed for people with forgiveness. And it's not that I was in denial, it was that I was unaware. That I was unaware. And holding on to forgiveness is, it, it can capsize your life and shipwreck your life. This uh, 4th of July, um, I. I went with some friends out on a lake, on Hag Lake. I, a couple years ago, I bought an old ski boat. My family loves the water. We are water people. And so uh, we go to Hag Lake. How many of you been to Hag Lake? It's beautiful. Uh, it's a great place to, to swim and kayak. And, uh, and so we, we took our, our boat out there. And, and uh, two of my closest friends, their families came with us. And so one of my friends, Joe, we decided to go a little early and uh, take the boat out and, and get our camp kind of set up or the place that we're going to stay set up. And so we drop our boat in the water uh, and, and then we taxi uh, to the other side of the lake and we find a place where people can park and walk down and, and we're going to set up our base camp there and we're loading, unloading everything and uh, we're just having fun. And, uh, and so that we get done and we still have about 45 minutes till everyone comes and two of my kids are with me and two of his kids are with me. And one of the, the best things that we like to do is just to go drive out in the middle of the lake, drop the anchor and just go swimming and cool off. And so uh, we, everyone gets back in the boat and, and, and we start driving towards the middle and we're in a no wake zone so I can't go very fast. But I notice something isn't right with the boat. I push it forward and I look at Joe, I said, something doesn't feel right. And I'm trying to, to move and we get to the no wake zone and I push the throttle up a little more and, and my boat's going like this through the water. And, and I look behind me and I look at this massive wake and I look at my friend and I said, look, this is like a wake that you can surf on. I mean, it's like, it is huge and I don't know what's going on and I punch it, uh, right? And it's guzzling gas as I, I'm just punching it and finally I kind of get up but something doesn't feel right and we get out to the middle and I'm just like, I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to put it in the junk drawer. We're going to worry about that later. Uh, and uh, so we get out in, in, in the middle of the lake and we drop the anchor and we start swimming and uh, after about five or ten minutes I look at the side of my boat and I see the stream of water pouring out the side of my boat. The bilge pump had kicked on and in that moment I knew exactly what happened. You see in a boat there's a drain plug in the bottom of the boat at the back of the boat under the engine or under the propeller and every once in a while I take that drain plug out because water gets in the boat and uh, underneath the boat when people climb in wet and I take that out and I let all the water drain out and there's a pump inside that drains it out as well and I knew immediately I left that plug 
out and I see my boat just kind of slowly going down because the pump is not going as quick as water is going in my boat. And so I take this little brass plug, it's a little threaded plug about an inch long and I submerge myself underwater holding onto my boat and the plug's down here. And, and if I lose this, the Hag Lake is deep by the way. It's not like 10 feet that you can swim down and get it. I mean, it's deep, it's like 40, 50, 60 feet deep and I'm holding onto it and I realize if I drop this, my whole boat goes. Like there, there is no coming back from this. If I drop this, it's, let's all get out of the boat and swim to the shore. And I finally get it in to, to uh, I finally get it in its hole and, and everything's fine. The rest of the day, it goes great. My boat works again. Every, all the water gets pumped out. But I was, I was thinking about unforgiveness in your heart. I was thinking about unforgiveness is like taking on water in your life. And you may be moving through life like this and you don't realize it, but I'm telling you, sometimes it's the pain that you have in your life that we often don't realize, and it's unprocessed pain. And for me, that was unforgiveness. That was not forgiving people of the pain and trauma that they caused my life. Well, I want to take you to a, a scripture, a story that highlights the value of forgiving one another. In, in fact, I've probably read this several times because I think it's an example of someone who went through immense trauma from their family, but they were still able to forgive. It's found in Genesis chapter 50. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Verse 15. It's a story of Joseph. Joseph is, um, uh, Joseph is uh, thrown into a pit by his brothers, left for dead, sold into slavery. He goes into slavery in Egypt. He makes himself, makes it to the prison. Uh, and, and I mean, his life is a series of tragedies, up and down and up and down. At the end of the story, Joseph makes it in second in command in all of Egypt. And this is the, the, the end of the narrative of Joseph. The narrative uh, story goes from uh, chapter 37 all the way through 50. And this is kind of the conclusion of it. And this is an example of forgiving people who have harmed you. Verse 15 through 21, this is what it says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Before I go on, let me just explain something here. Joseph was a teenager when his brother sold him into slavery. He's 57 years old when they come back. 40 years has passed since the time of his pain, the first point of his pain, to the time that they come back. That's a long time to wait. So he's 57. I'm, I'm 41, and, and the light bulb's turning on to me for, for me, but he's 57, and this is what he does. His brothers came to him and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph does what most people do not expect him to do. He forgives his brothers. Now, it's important to understand the, the story of, of God in Scripture. And, and, and some people might ask, Aaron, why do you preach out of Genesis so much? I preach out of Genesis so much because Genesis happens before the Mosaic Law happens. And, and, and that's important in Scripture because in, in the New Testament, we often uh, you know, talk about, oh, we don't have to obey the law. And the, there's all this, you know, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And so we, that we don't have to. And, and it's important to read Genesis in, the, in this theological way, that it happened before the law. And so this is God's plan for humanity before the Ten Commandments and the subsequent 613 commandments that follow. And forgiveness is there at the very beginning. Our faith is built upon this theological concept of forgiving people who have harmed us, forgiving humanity who has hurt us. No other religion in the world can boast of such value. And the Bible says a lot about forgiveness. Let me just give you four verses real quick and then I wanna go on. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. We think, Jesus, could you be that harsh about forgiving one another? He goes on to say this in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus, because he's probably struggling with the same message we are. Like, do I really need to forgive those people who hurt me? And he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven times, right? Like seven times, the eighth time you're done. Like you're cut off. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 77 is another way of saying infinity, forever. Like you just do it over and over and over, Paul says this in Colossians, you fast forward about 30 years, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And of course, Proverbs says this, Solomon writes this, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. Forgiveness, I could go on and on and on, but forgiveness is part of the narrative of Scripture. Ever since the fall of humanity, uh, uh, humans have a deep capacity to wound and hurt one another, uh, and, and there must be a way to reconcile together and have forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said this, everyone thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have something to forgive. We love the concept until someone has physically or emotionally or spiritually harmed you or abused you, and we think, well, I don't like forgiveness now. And we often think, here, here's why we, we, some people don't love forgiveness. We often think that forgiveness of humanity and one another is primarily about the person that we are forgiving. We, we think of it in this way. We think, when we think of that in that way, we think that we're in the place of God. Right, Joseph said it, he said it beautifully. He says, am I in the place of God? God is the judge. He will judge 
the wrongdoings of humanity, but we are to forgive. And so forgiveness isn't primarily about the other person. Forgiveness is about you and what you need to forgive. Forgiveness is this way. You can write this down. Forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and realizing that prisoner is you. Realizing that you're the one who's been held captive by unforgiveness. Forgiving people releases you from the right to get even, to get back, and the burden it carries. And so in the last couple weeks entering into sabbatical and in my first few weeks into sabbatical and, and it's still the day because it's not like it happened in a week and I'm all better, but I entered this, this place of forgiveness and I, and I got turned on to this book um, by uh, this author uh, named Desmond Tutu and it's called The Book of Forgiving. And, and, and he walks us through, and this is what I went through, the fourfold process of forgiveness. And, and before I go through that, I'm just going to give you a 10,000 foot view. I, I need to tell you the story about the author, the story about Desmond Tutu. He was an activist instrumental in dismantling South African apartheid. I was telling my friends about my friend about this book and he goes, what's apartheid? He didn't, he didn't know about it. And, and if you're unfamiliar, apartheid is, was institutionalized racism in South Africa. It, it was uh, legislation put there in, by a, a, a white minority government against black South Africans. And over the course, course of a few years, 3.5 million people got moved from their homes, and it was institutionalized segregation. And Desmond Tutu was an activist, and he's been compared to in South Africa to, as, to Martin Luther King Jr. He was theologically trained. He was an Anglican priest. He became the Archbishop of Cape Town. He was an activist for justice, but he preached a message of nonviolence. Uh, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984. And he was instrumental in the repealing of apartheid in 1991. One. After it was repealed, the first democratic election, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela became the, the president in 1994. And, and there was a general fear that there would be retaliation, that there would be more violence, but the opposite actually happened. There was forgiveness and there was healing. Nelson Mandela set up what we know now as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he put Desmond Tutu as the chairman of this. And the purpose of this commission was to give people and victims an opportunity to tell their story. It was televised to tell the story of the atrocities of racism. And they began to tell their stories, and Desmond was at the middle of this, and he's often been asked, how have you and the people of South Africa, how have you been able to move past apartheid? How have you been able to move past this? And his answer is in this book, the forgiving book. He wrote it in 2014. This is what he says. He says, it seems that there is no end 
to the creative ways we humans can hurt one another. And there is no end to the capacity for the human soul to heal. He, he, he says this, I love this. He says there are two things to understand about forgiveness. That there is nothing in the world that cannot be forgiven and there is no one who is undeserving of forgiveness. And he follows the model and the method of Jesus because even Jesus forgave those who put him to death on the cross. And he talks about this vicious cycle of unforgiveness called the revenge cycle. And so I left some blank space in your notes to write this down, but if we could get that up on the screen, that slide up there. And he talks about this revenge cycle. And this revenge cycle starts all the way on the right in that box with a hurt, a harm, or a loss. Something that happened to you. And when something happens that hurts us, we have a response. We have a choice. Uh, and we have pain, but then we have a choice. And, and most, most people, we don't, we, we don't always consciously make the choice, but there's still a choice. And the choice is to choose harm. And, and, and then, then you go to rejecting a shared humanity. A shared humanity is this. It's that, that, that we all uh, look different, we all act different, we all believe different things, but at the, at, the, at the end of the day, we all descend from Adam and Eve, the same family. And, and we all have uh, the, 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 the same, um, uh, to, we all have human dignity at the core of who we are. And so there's this shared humanity, but when we go in the revenge cycle, we reject shared humanity. Humanity, And he says then there's revenge and retaliation and payback. And then there's violence and cruelty. And that goes into more hurt, harm, and loss. And it's this cycle that goes over and over and over. But he says there is another way. And it's in that choice, that choose to harm. Or he says this, the, choose, the choice to heal. Let's get this next slide up there. And he says that this is the fourfold path of healing from unforgiveness, of forgiving people. And it starts with telling your story and then naming your hurt, granting forgiveness, and renewing or releasing the relationship. Listen, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. And choosing to heal is often the first step towards reconciliation and forgiveness, from freedom from unforgiveness in your life. I want to go through this fourfold path really quickly. And I, and, and I was thinking about uh, this last night. I was thinking about, um, I, I preached a message about forgiving others uh, probably four or five months ago. How many of you remember it? All right, me neither. All right, <laughs> we got one. But I realized that, that uh, and you work for me, so that's not fair. It didn't count. Um, and I realized that, that in the season that we're in, in the season that we have, have walked through, that, that people have really hurt each other. I mean, I stay off Facebook and social media for a reason. Like, like it, it, people just hurt each other. And, and even if I stay off it, I still make my way on it somehow through posts and things. And there's just, there is just hurtful stuff out there. Are you with me? And, and in the season that we've gone through, that there have been a lot of hurts and a lot of offenses and there have been a lot of wounds that have taken place. And so I think this message today is relevant just as it always has been because of the things that have happened to us or the things that maybe we have done 
to others. So let, let me talk about the fourfold path of forgiveness. The first one is this. It is telling the story. Telling the story. Human inclination is to hide abuse and hide hurt and hide pain. It is putting those events and that trauma in a junk drawer because we don't want to think about it, we don't want to pull it out, and we don't want other people to see it. But silence and secrecy is the breeding ground for shame in your life. The, the enemy wants things to remain secret, and he wants things to stay hidden, because he knows that's one way he can get you to feel awful about who you are. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa gave victims an opportunity to tell their story. And this was televised on TV in, in South Africa every Sunday night, one hour episodes for two years. And so an entire country got to hear the stories, the pain, the abuse. There is something that happens in us when we tell our story, when we bring it to the surface and allow it to come forth, when we open the junk drawer and we allow it to bubble into uh, overflow and tell somebody so we can find healing. I think the healing process starts in the storytelling and the narrative because right now you have a narrative of people that have hurt you and harmed you and you're going to stay in that narrative until you choose to change and choose to heal and maybe you're at that pain vertex. Maybe you've got a little ways to go. Maybe you passed it and you didn't know what to do but you're at a place in your life where, where you need uh, God to heal you and it comes first by telling your story. Knowing your story and telling your story creates resilience in your life. I see it all the time. One of the privileges of being a pastor is people get to tell me their story. And I love hearing about people's story. I love hearing about their life. I love hearing about where they work and their family. And I love hearing their stories of how God has changed them and what God has done in their life. And every time I see someone tell their story, if you've ever seen someone give a testimony, it's like they have another level of victory and freedom in your life. That something happens when you tell your story. In 1990s, there was a, uh, a professor at Emory University, Marshall Duke. He gave children a survey called, Do You Know? In order to find out how much they knew about their own story, the, the, the stories of where they came from and what happened in their families. How much did you know about your family? And, and here's what's interesting is what he discovered. The more the children knew, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the more resilient these children were as they went into adulthood. It wasn't not knowing the stories of their backgrounds. It was actually knowing their story that created a resilience. And the best single predictor of children's emotional health and happiness is knowing their story. Knowing where they came from. Knowing where their parents came from. Knowing the pain their, ex their parents have experienced. My, my wife and I, when we have arguments, you know what we do? We don't go to the bedroom and, and, and hash it out in the bedroom. We do it right in front of our kids. Now, they might need counseling someday, all right? I guarantee it. They're PKs. 
But sometimes I walk out of the room, and my son, they're old enough now, they'll be like, oh, I'm leaving now. We, we allow them to see the stories. And when our kids struggle, we tell them that we struggled. The things that we have done. There is something powerful about telling your story and knowing your story. So, so how do you tell your story? Well, this is what I did. I wrote it down. I've told a few people, your story isn't for everyone, but your story is for someone. And so you tell your story. You write it down. What, what, what is it that happened to you? And you take this time. And I wrote mine in a journal. There were six or seven things that had happened to me. And, and, and I began to write those down and tell the story. The second one is, is this. It's naming the hurt. Naming the hurt. It's finding the emotion that went with the event and giving language to that emotion. It's one thing to tell the story. It's, it's, it's another to tell the hurt. This was foundational for me because I had things that bothered me but I didn't know quite why they bothered me. And when I finally was able to give language to the emotion, whether it was, well, that there was an attack on my character, it was attack on my integrity, it was attack on my leadership, it was attack on my family, I began to find the emotions that went through the events. And it's oftentimes when you discover the emotions that went through the events as you find healing. I heard this from a, 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 uh, a psychologist who's also uh, a trained uh, in, in theology. And, and he said this. It's, his name's Adam Young. And he has this podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves In. And he said this. He said, it isn't the actual events that happen in our life that people have a hard time healing from. It's the emotions that we attach to the events that happened. If you think about the events that happen in your life, I mean, there are a lot of things that happen in your life that you forget, right? Like my sermon four months ago, all right? But then there are things in your life that you remember. And it's not always the event. It's the emotion that was tied to the event. And so if you can identify that emotion and that hurt and that pain, you can begin to understand why it hurts so bad. Naming the hurt is giving emotion a name. The third one is this. I'm going through this quick that a, an entire book took time to. So read the book and I think you'll be better off. <laughs> the third one is this, granting forgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice. We choose to grant forgiveness. When we choose to grant forgiveness, we begin to find freedom and we keep ourselves from being trapped in an endless loop of telling stories and naming the hurt. In fact, this was the most crucial step in my life was to be able to, to grant for forgiveness, to be able to tell the story, name the hurt, but actually grant forgiveness, to, to, to let it go. I, I don't know how I went through life holding on to things and not actually forgiving people. I, th I thought, honestly, I had thought I had forgiven people, but it took someone courageous enough to say to me, I don't think you really have. I don't think you really have. And I granted forgiveness and I wrote it down and I, and I, and I forgave people. And, and forgiveness is about changing your story and starting and telling a new one. And, and here's the hard part about granting forgiveness. I will tell you the hardest part is this, is that we often want the person who hurt us to come up and say that they're sorry. Don't you? Don't you just wish... They would come and say, you know what, I'm really sorry I did this to you. 
But the reality is that sometimes that will not happen. Sometimes that will never happen. Sometimes your parents pass away and you never had a chance to reconcile a relationship. Sometimes people move away and you never have that chance. Some people are so stubborn and prideful, even if you say they, you, you hurt them, they won't even offer a true apology. And, and then there's really weak apologies too. You realize that? You ever have someone say, I'm sorry for how you feel? You don't accept that apology because that's not an apology. They're actually saying, well, you're dysfunctional because you're feeling that way. It doesn't, for, for them, it's, it's uh, I did a sermon called The Art of Apology years ago. It, it, but, it, but it's this, it's, it's apologizing for inflicting the wound and the pain. And so it's taking responsibility. But what happens if, if you never get a chance to meet with that person again or hear the words, I'm sorry, you can still grant forgiveness. You, we have to. Remember, granting forgiveness isn't about setting them free. It's about setting you free. And it's about laying down the hurt and, and, and giving up the right to get even. You can let things go in your heart. For me, it was in a journal. All of it was in a journal. And I shared it with my friend. It was a story. It was the hurt. And it was, I forgive, fill in the blank, which leads me to the last one. I want to close with this one, is renewing or releasing the relationship. Renewing or releasing the relationship. You know, somehow we think forgiveness is always restoring a relationship. We, we think just because we forgive someone, everything's going to be better. Uh, and, and he uses this language, renewing and, and, and releasing, for a reason. He's, he says this, renewing doesn't mean continuing relationship the way it was. It's actually starting a new one. It's renewing the relationship. And the important thing to understand in this in your life is who do you renew a relationship with and who do you release a relationship with? And for me, most of them are release relationships. I don't want to have half coffee, right? That's, I've forgiven, but we're not going to be friends. <laughs> I'm not going to invite that back into my life. And the important is discovering who you renew and who you release. You renew the people that are going to be around in your life. You renew the relationship with your family. You renew the relationship with your spouse. You renew the relationship with your, your, your friends that you know are going to be there for you. You renew your relationship. You start new and you rebuild the trust. And then there are those you release relationships. It's not unkind. It's not unloving. And sometimes that is the best thing to do. You had a boyfriend to betray your trust? You don't have to renew that relationship. <laughs> you have someone who continues to hurt you, a friend, and continue to say things? You don't have to renew that relationship. You need to walk through forgiveness. It doesn't always mean renewing it. Sometimes it means releasing it. And I think that is a Holy Spirit-filled moment to figure out who you renew and who you release. I want you to stand with me. One of the most powerful moments in my life as a leader was uh, at a church camp. And um, I, I've been at church camps um, pretty much my whole life. I went to them when I was a kid and then I 
led them as an adult, as a youth pastor. And the most powerful moment, we had a lot of powerful moments. The Holy Spirit fell. I mean, there's just amazing things that happened in my life and in people's life in a retreat type setting. But, but the most vivid and powerful one was when the speaker got up that had wounds from his father and he began to share those wounds with, 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 uh, with 300 students. And, and at the end, he, he talked about forgiving your parents for what they've done and asking your parents to forgive you. And it was like something in the spirit broke. Something changed. And it, and it, it was the most powerful encounter that I've ever had and seeing God work in a place and it was like something broke and from that point on the students that and they called their parents that night like it, it was like this is your response don't come to the altar I don't want you to reach your hand. I want you to call them and say I'm sorry or, or, or say I forgive you and, and it was like everything began to change and I have seen, saw these students, still know them. And their life just continues to grow and to change. It's about releasing the pain, the wound, and the unforgiveness you have in your heart. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to go into a time of exalting Jesus. But I want to ask you a question to respond to him today. I want to ask you, do you have unforgiveness? Are you holding on to a wound or pain? Have you allowed that to become part of your identity, much like I did? Does it drive you? Do you think about it? Does, does it still hurt as if it happened yesterday? Do you still hold a grudge? Do you still wish harm? Do you still, are you still angry? There's so many things that people have done to us and done to you that have hurt you? Are you holding on to it? With everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus today. If you're here and you say, you know what, there's something or someone in my life that I'm holding something against. There is something that happened that I haven't released that in my life. If that's you with no one looking around, I just want to agree with you in the spirit. Would you just lift your hand right now? If you say, you know what, that's me. I see your hand right here. I see your hands, hands all over. You're saying there are things in my life. Anyone else? You say, you know what, there's someone, there is something that I just can't get beyond and I just can't grow through. Listen, I, 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 God is going to move in your life and even in this moment, He, he is uh, uh, filling you with His Spirit and beginning to break the chains of unforgiveness in your life. And I want to encourage you, your journey into forgiving other people starts right now. This is the beginning point, not the end point. Don't walk out of this room and just think, I'm never going to pick this up again. I want you to walk out of this room and think, I need to write the story down. I need to name the hurt. I need to grant forgiveness. I need to renew or release the relationship. I need to tell somebody. Your journey starts now. As we move forward together in the spirit and the things that God wants for us in this church, I think we have a bright future and a path of healing. The reality is this, church. Hurt people hurt people. 
And if we don't find healing, we continue to hurt other people. But healed people heal people. And I think that we can be a church that's a church of healing, healing relationships. You know, a lot of times we pray for healing of our nation or healing of our world. It starts here. It starts now. It starts in your town, in your house, in your city, in your county. It starts here. Father, we love you. We praise your name. We honor you, God. We sing praises to you for what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. Would you worship with us, church family? Just lift your hands. Just begin to give God the praise because we forgive because he forgave us.